This is a conversation with Bruce Ecker. Hi, Bruce. Hello, Serge. So, Bruce, what is important for you these days? What are you working on? Well, the the focus of my work and and the focus of the Coherent Psychology Institute, which I co-direct, is on how transformational change comes about in psychotherapy. What is it that produces deep, lasting, liberating change? You know, the kind of change that permanently ends unwanted patterns or symptoms and, and which the, the therapy client feels as a very deep, meaningful shift. Mm-hmm. That's a very different kind of change than incremental change, which, of course, is uh, relapse-prone and reduces symptoms only partially. Uh, what is very exciting to us is that there has been a major development. Uh, suddenly, since uh, 2004, we have a new, uh, what I think of as a decisive understanding of the process that's required by the brain for profound lasting change to occur. It's, it's, uh, actually it's a process that was first detected clinically by examining many breakthrough therapy sessions. And then what happened in 2004, uh, is that the, the process was detected completely independently by neuroscientists in their rigorous controlled studies, first with animals and then with people. And, uh, neuroscientists call the process memory reconsolidation. Okay, so obviously we're going to talk more about this process, but uh, in a nutshell, the um, the, the setting uh, of this conversation is about uh, a focus on how is it that people can achieve lasting change and um, seen through your clinical experience as well as uh, the findings of neuroscience, uh, the mechanism that is going to allow for this lasting change to happen. Yes, exactly. That's well well put. Um, we've been studying the research and how it translates into use in therapy sessions, and it is beginning to look to us very much like this may be a core process that is uh, actually always operating whenever this kind of transformational change takes place in therapy sessions. Uh, we've, in fact, uh, one of one of the chapters in our new book, Unlocking the Emotional Brain, is completely dedicated to uh, examining pu- uh, previously published case examples from four different therapies, uh, AEDP, you know, Diana Foch's mm-hmm. uh, emotion-focused therapy. We have a case example from Les Greenberg of EFT, uh, EMDR, and Interpersonal Neurobiology, IPNB, Daniel Siegel's approach. And we show that the specific steps that the brain requires for memory reconsolidation are unambiguously identifiable, detectable, in these previously published case examples, even though the authors of the case studies uh, did not uh, point out these specific steps that are visible in the work because, you know, each therapy tends to have its own set of theoretical concepts and metaphors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're uh, developing this project of showing that behind the concepts and metaphors specific to each therapy 
it's possible to identify the steps of memory reconsolidation whenever uh, deep lasting transformational change is, mm -hmm. is observed in therapy sessions. Yeah, yeah. so there's the underlying process uh, is memory reconsolidation and uh, it can happen and take different forms in these various therapies but you can show it uh, in filigree. That's exactly. Yeah, and memory reconsolidation is a very special type of neuroplasticity that was not known to exist uh, until around 2000, and then, as I mentioned, in 2004, the research reached a point where the very specific uh, uh, rules of the brain or, or steps required by the brain for it to happen were identified. Um, the process takes a specific piece of emotional learning or emotional conditioning and unlearns it so thoroughly that it is erased. Mm -hmm. And by erased, I mean both as both as neural circuitry and as a behavioral or subjective response. And that's the really that's the ideal form of change because the unwanted pattern or symptom is truly eliminated right down to its emotional and and neural roots. And we've been using this process in our own practices and teaching it to therapists all around the world, and its 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 effectiveness is unmistakable because you know when transformational change happens, uh, it's it's pretty obvious. It's not subtle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. it has become really clear to us that using this process greatly increases uh, a therapist's consistency in achieving real breakthroughs, whatever particular methods or system of therapy uh, a therapist may be using. Right, right. And so that's an interesting part because uh, you're talking about the unlearning and uh, you're talking, and obviously the unlearning means there has been a learning, so you're not talking about things from a sense of, oh, uh, this is uh, this person has this nature or that nature, uh, but really is there's been a process of you learning something and here's a way in which you can so completely unlearn it uh, that you are transformed. Yes. Exactly, exactly. You know, there are many different models of causality or causation in our field at present. Uh, the, the, the notion of psychological causation, uh, and, and in particular uh, emotional learning, symptoms caused by underlying emotional learnings, uh, I think has been diminishing over the past several decades as uh, the, the pharmacological or the... Um, Biochemical, genetic uh, causation models have been uh, ascending on the rise. And what we find, see, we use methods that uh, start from a specific presenting pattern or symptom, whether it's mood, emotion, behaviors, thought patterns, uh, somatic symptoms. The first step in our approach is to identify in very specific terms what the problem, what the person's problem is. And then we've developed methods that can, uh, find and bring into explicit awareness the implicit emotional learnings that are underlying and uh, generating that specific symptom. Mm -hmm. And that's the first half of, of the methodology is to re this, what we call discovery or retrieval 
of the underlying emotional learning. Then we use the memory reconsolidation process to dissolve or profoundly unlearn and erase that specific emotional learning, and we see the symptom abruptly disappear and remain gone. So to us, this is an indication that a tremendously wide range of presenting symptoms and problems are actually formed or uh, generated and maintained by these implicit long-standing emotional learnings mm -hmm. rather than uh, genetics or uh, neurotransmitter imbalances uh, or, or, or other models of causation because if those were the cause then we wouldn't see the kinds of results we're getting from our methods. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that uh, the uh, the fact that it works shows why it's created. Yeah, yeah. and it's emotional. Right. So that it's, it's about emotional learning. Yes, it's about emotional learning. And let's see, where should we go from that? Uh, well, I can I can begin to. And begin to give you an example. That, mm -hmm. That's my way to ground these ideas. Um, the example I have in mind right now is from, it's a very, it's in my mind because it's very recent in my practice, just several weeks ago, and it was uh, a really lovely moment for me. This is uh, something that happened in couples therapy. It's a married man and woman, and the 50-year-old woman as a girl, was molested by her grandfather. And after I guided her through the memory reconsolidation process, she described the falling away of her, uh, really, her lifelong feeling of uh, a mood of angry resentment, mm -hmm. a, a sort of bitter, angry resentment that she was very prone to going into uh, especially in her couple relationship with her husband. And uh, what she said to me uh, in the session after this shift took place, she said, and these are her exact words. I was very quick to write them down. It was <laughs> music to my ears, of course. She, she said, I've been angry and resentful my whole life. It's like something has just turned to dust. It's not alive anymore. Before something felt like cords and cables strangling me. I feel so freed up. So those are her exact words. And, well, I want to get into the steps of the reconsolidation process that I followed with her. But uh, let's see, I could do that. I, um, before I do that, I, I feel like I'd like to mention why this... Uh, this new knowledge of memory reconsolidation is is a very big thing for psychotherapy in several different ways. Does that make sense to you? Yes, yes, yes. Let's go there. All right, good. Uh, and and when I describe more about her, we'll we'll get to the specific emotional learning that was underlying her mood. So we'll, mm -hmm. we'll example. Um, well, maybe the first way I'd like to point out the significance of this for therapy is that. Negative core emotional learnings and conditionings, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, are, are so prevalent. They underlie and drive most of the problems and symptoms that people seek therapy for. So this process is applicable with most of the clients that therapists work with. Uh, one of the more 
common and important examples is attachment patterns, right? Attachment patterns are emotional learnings mm -hmm. uh, that can be transformed and dissolved through this memory reconsolidation process. And we've seen the process dispel an extremely wide range. Things, you know, mood problems, emotional reactions, like I mentioned, thoughts, body symptoms. So uh, another big way this has the potential for therapy is that the as well, I mentioned this already also uh, earlier to here with you. The the process fits in so nicely with many different therapy systems. Mm -hmm. Once it understands the steps of this process, once you know what the brain requires for this kind of change to to occur, you can use your preferred methods to make sure those steps happen. So this isn't about having to learn, you know, a whole new system of therapy. Um, and uh, the other the other point I'd like to emphasize is that these underlying emotional learnings, uh, I think we all know as, as therapists, they're, they're extremely tenacious. Mm -hmm. They simply do not fade out over time. And they aren't supposed to fade out. The, uh, the, the, the emotional brain does a super job of locking these things in to last indefinitely, and that's a result, of course, of natural selection. Uh, it was survival positive for emotional learnings to get locked in to last a lifetime. And, in fact, that is what gets locked by the emotional brain, these, these learnings that we form in the course of our development. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost an everyday experience for, for us therapists to uh, encounter this remarkable tenacity of emotional learnings that formed decades ago for many of our clients, but still endlessly re-trigger and uh, maintain so many of the painful symptoms. Yeah, so so actually, as you're saying it, it's uh, in a way the context is uh, we are who we are in a wonderful way, in a very positive way, thanks to the strengths of emotional learning. And uh, we have every reason to be very happy about most of it. And yeah. unfortunately, some side effect of being so good at emotional learning is we also retain in a very, very, um, very grounded way the negative emotional learning. Yeah, exactly. The, the positive benefits are tremendous. There are so many things we... Uh, know and, and we can respond so quickly to so many situations with knowings, sophisticated, subtle knowings guiding us that we don't even have to think of or be aware of, to be guided by. And so, of course, emotional learning uh, has been tremendously beneficial in our adaptation and survival, but as you said, <clears throat> there's, a, there's quite an underbelly to the emotional memory system, a dark side, which is... Uh, that we're all, in effect, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, prisoners of our negative emotional learnings because our, <clears throat> our, our most distress-laden emotional learnings from earlier in life uh, persist and keep us experiencing as, as present emotional realities uh, all the worst things we've ever experienced uh, in, in the past. So... That's what makes this discovery of memory reconsolidation so significant that actually mm -hmm. the key to that prison of emotional memory is built into the brain, and it's this process of memory reconsolidation. 
you know, researchers throughout the 20th century had come to the conclusion that there is no such feat. They explicitly came to the conclusion that the brain does not have a mechanism for erasing emotional learnings. Mm -hmm. That the best that can be done is the suppression uh, or, or regulation of, of negative emotional learnings through a process such as, well, I guess the prototype is extinction, you know, mm -hmm. training. But there was a vast amount of extinction research done throughout the 20th century, and none of it ever succeeded in erasing decisively and permanently any target learning. So do you want to maybe mention a bit of that research that shows that actually it can be done? The, the memory reconsolidation research? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's see. I don't want to get too technical here because the research is highly technical. I've been studying the original research papers uh, since I first came across this in 2005. And let me tell you, each one <laughs> takes a lot of work to uh, fathom and really uh, master what's going on and what it means. Um, uh, and maybe, you know, I think when we get more into the case example and I spell out the the concrete steps, yeah. that will be a good way to describe what the research has shown. Good, good, good. good. Both with animals and with humans. Um, so maybe well, that would be a great transition to go to the concrete case. All right, good. Let's do that. Let's do that. Now, this was a couple that was seeing me for a number of different problems that they were having. And, of course, there were issues and patterns contributing to the problems from, from both partners, from both of them. Uh, and, but what I'm going to describe here is about the woman because it, it gives a, a very concise example of memory reconsolidation uh, taking place. Now, the, the process is, has very well-defined steps. <clears throat> and... To apply the process in therapy requires a couple of preparation steps. Get to where the steps of the actual erasure sequence can be guided. Mm -hmm. The preparation steps actually take most of the time. Once you're, once you have all the necessary ingredients and can guide the erasure sequence, that literally takes five or ten minutes. Now, the first preparation step as I, as I mentioned, is to identify the client's unwanted pattern or symptom very specifically. You know, what does he or she experience that is the problem? And for this woman, it was this uh, chronic and frequent mood of uh, angry resentment, which, which would leak out or project out or vent at her husband quite a lot over the years. The, uh, that, with her, that was fairly easy to identify. You know, there were some clients who have a lower level of awareness or difficulty articulating their experience where it might take, you know, two or three sessions to arrive at this kind of specificity that's needed in, about the symptom. But with many clients, it can happen quite quickly in the session. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about uh, uh, not just a question of uh, what the uh, original complaint is, but have a degree of specificity that you have a sense of uh, this is really where the action is. Yes. Exactly. I'll I'll ask my my client in the first session. Well, can you bring to mind a good 
recent example, something that you feel is a strong example, and walk me through it happening moment by moment. And as we walk through, I'll ask questions like, uh, what is it you're feeling at that moment? What is it you're thinking at that moment? What is it that jumped out at you that you just heard him or her say just before you felt that? So we'll get to the, the, the experiential particulars mm-hmm. of what the problem is. Because often people use very broad, blurry nominalizations when they describe their problem at the start of therapy. You know, I have a communication problem or I want to feel and so we go through this process of getting to the, the you know, the phenomenological particulars of what makes up the problem. Once I feel I have enough specificity uh, to begin, uh, uh, well, enough specificity is the moment where I feel I can now begin to look for an underlying emotional learning driving that mm-hmm. problem. And that's the next step. It is guiding uh, an experiential process of discovery of of what's underneath. You know, what's what's the the emotional learning there? And we've developed a wide range of ways for doing that in in a focused and very efficient manner. Now, this is very uh, deep work that that goes into very vulnerable areas because we have to bring the the non-conscious vulnerable negative implicit emotional learning or schema into explicit experience and integrated awareness. Mm-hmm. So it goes to a core of emotional meaning that the client feels with their whole body. This isn't just cognitive insights up in the head. And uh, what happened with this woman is is the following. I, I figured that her resentfulness was probably based in something that was big in her life, but not conscious. You know, these emotional learnings are, they tend, these schemas tend to be a, 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 an abstraction or a generalization from original specific experiences, and the ema does not refer back to the original experience. So when people go into these, these um, reactivated emotional learnings, it does not bring awareness of either the learning or the original experiences mm-hmm. formed it. So I headed for that with her by uh, trying out my assumption that her resentfulness was based on something very big and important in her life that was not in awareness. And so to get to that, I said to her this. I said, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question, and please don't try to answer it right away. Uh, in fact, I don't Im- don't imagine you really know the answer to it. So I'll ask the question, and let's just let the question hang in the air. And just let's sit with it, and you see if an answer might come by itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The question is, in your whole life, what is it that you resent the most? Mm-hmm. And... I basically accompanied her in allowing her own implicit memory to bring forth uh, some some initial particulars. Right. And when we work in this way, we never know what will be the first element or ingredient uh, of the implicit material to show up. It might it might just be a body sensation, it might be an image, it might be a whole memory. 
and she rather quickly. Uh, so let, before before in a way going there, I want to just linger a little bit on this because uh, it's a very powerful thing. It's like uh, if you were just asking that question, for instance, without the person being primed, uh, you would obviously get totally different results. And so there is something about uh, the setting and uh, that sense of prompting the person to say you're not going to find the answer and inviting the pause and inviting, you know, creating that space where uh, inviting people to pay attention to the implicit as opposed to something that's gonna, that they already know. Uh, that's a big part. And uh, then you have obviously been uh, attuned to the client through the uh, uh, understanding the, uh, the, the, the issue, not just in an abstract way, but in an experiential way, so that at this point you have a pretty good idea of what would be a meaningful question. So we're very much in uh, something that is about mindfulness, meaning, you know, it's a very special space that's created at that moment. That's right. That's right. I'm guiding the client to bring attention to where attention never goes. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm emphasizing. I'm, my tone of voice and my manner has a softness and a warmth that is establishing emotional safety. Yeah. Yeah. For this to happen. So yes, there are many ingredients here that allow this to, to, uh, to, to develop effectively. And I, I really like that phrase you used a moment ago, to uh, uh, helping the client bring attention to where attention never goes, you know, yes. which I think is a very, very powerful thing, that that part of, uh, you know, that attention never goes there, and you're, we're creating a space to make it happen. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, this material may be fully unconscious, never showing up in awareness in a whole lifetime, and yet it is in the room, it is within arm's reach, so to speak, if only the client's attention is guided to go there. Mm-hmm. We're assuming coherence. I'll probably touch on this more as we continue to talk, but the underlying material has full coherence. It makes total sense given what the person actually experienced and suffered in life. These are emotional learnings. They make sense. They are adaptive and coherent, and they're full of personal meaning. Uh, so the, the, the methods we use to guide attention are really uh, utilizing the coherence of the material and speaking to the coherence. Um, and, you know, with some clients, at some times, there is resistance that might block the process and then we have to work with the resistance very respectfully and sensitively because sometimes the material is something that the person isn't ready to encounter directly. So uh, you know, since you use the word coherence here, maybe it makes sense to just actually very briefly uh, explain what you mean by that, that, that you know, in a way that, the, 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 as you said briefly, the symptom makes sense given yes. what happened in, in the person's life. Well, uh, probably the best way for me to clarify what we mean by coherence is for me to tell you what she found. Good. And, and the example will probably describe coherence better than I can do in, in an abstract idea. Um, what she found in really just a few minutes uh, uh, was that she had already mentioned in a factual manner in the course of the 
couples therapy and in the in the past with her husband that she had suffered being molested as a girl. This was already known. And so her what began to arise uh, in response to my question and invitation was that experience. And she became teary and we 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 hovered with that. We dwelled together in the experience and I said there's something in that experience that has come up in, in, in response to us wondering what is it you resent most? And I said, of course, look, it, it, of course it makes sense that you resent that this was done to you. That is so easy to understand. But tell me more. You see, there's, there's great specificity, unique specificity in each person's emotional learnings and we mustn't quickly assume we know what what this is made of. So I always keep going further for more and more specificity. What is it that that you suffered in this that you resent more than everything about what happened? So I kept sticking with the, the, the question, mm-hmm. the inquiry, uh, layer by layer. And what emerged rather quickly for her was this. She resents it, it, this surprised me. I'm often surprised by what comes out, and I've learned not to uh, trust my own notions or hypotheses, but to keep uh, learning from the client what's there. What emerged, and this somewhat surprised her as well, this core of resentment was not even at her grandfather. Of course she resented him for what he did. But this strongest core of resentment that I was asking her to zero in on she began to sense it's not even about him, which was momentarily baffling to us in the room. And as back with that, what clarified, and there's a beautiful built-in process that I'm sure you've experienced too, when you sit with whatever layer of material is already present and available, mm-hmm. the next underlying layer tends to begin to show up just by being present to what's already in awareness. And sure enough, what she became aware of is that and this was this was so unfamiliar to her as a girl and ever since she had been holding the ordeal of the molestation as something that had cruelly happened only to her and not to anyone else in the world because that's how it seems to her as a little girl. Such a thing seemed not to exist anywhere else. No no one ever talked of it. She'd never heard of it. And it happened to her, and it was huge. It filled her world. And yet it's not something anyone else ever talks about. So this was the, you know, the wordless meaning-making of a child. Yeah. That this happened only to me. And so the world seemed horribly cruel to have this happen only to her and not to anyone else. And that construct, that's the emotional learning. That's a very specific schema or construct that she formed without realizing it and without words. And that was planted in her implicit memory and had dominated her mood in relation to life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so I want to just uh, come back a little bit to what you were describing as you, you described this. Uh, yeah. You know, you you mentioned that actually uh, you keep coming back to it. So there's a sense of you, uh, you know, using the word specificity, but it's about 
staying with that experience, not just letting people, you know, in a way come up with a few words or something, but uh, staying with that experience uh, so that, uh, you know, little by little, there is more of a chance to grasp the implicit that's there. Exactly, exactly. Uh, There's a subjective guide that we teach therapists to use as they do this discovery or retrieval process. Um, I think you might be able to see from what we discovered for her, this happened only to me. Soon as that is put into words and recognized, I experience a shift myself. Mm -hmm. And the shift, suddenly there's no more mystery about her mood of resentment, her bitter, angry mood of resentment that she's had all her life. There's no more mystery because the coherence is now fully in view. Mm -hmm. So how to define coherence? We can say that the the underlying learning, once it's uh, brought into explicit awareness and words, fully makes sense of the symptom. And that's true as a definition as far as it goes. But it doesn't capture the feeling in the room. Yeah, the but moment, at, the, at that moment, the world makes sense again. Yes. Instead of whole, being a senseless world, it makes sense. Yes, yes. The deep personal sense of how the symptom is emotionally necessary is, is suddenly lucid. Mm-hmm. And the client feels it, and also the therapist feels it. That's how you know as the therapist when you've gone far enough in, in this discovery work. The world makes sense, the symptom makes sense, and always, because emotional learnings are adaptive and coherent, the, the, the content of the emotional learning reveals how the symptom is actually emotionally necessary to have. And that's a phrase we use in training therapists to work this way. You're looking for the emotional necessity of the symptom. And once it's out in the open, you feel it. There's that. The, 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 the sudden disappearance of all mystery. These things are such dark mysteries before it's made explicit and you're wondering, what, what is there underneath that's maintaining this? Big mystery. Mystery is suddenly gone and the atmosphere in the room shifts in a very unmistakable way. So, now we had all of the, uh, uh, or no, most of the ingredients we need to do the erasure sequence. Because now we know what the target learning is. This construct, it happened only to me, is now, from the therapist's viewpoint, the target for uh, unlearning and dissolving and erasing using the memory reconsolidation process. But one more major ingredient is needed before that process can be guided. Because the process requires that the person, this, uh, and this can be thought of as, as the third and final preparation step. And it consists of finding an experience that's available to the client that sharply and vividly contradicts what the target learning knows about the world or expects about how the world functions. So for this woman the contradictory knowledge is going to be something, anything really, that brings her into vividly knowing and feeling it did not happen only to me. Mm -hmm. Now, this 
is necessarily going to be her own vivid knowledge of this. You see, it won't do for the therapist to cognitively explain that it did not happen only to her because that is factual, conceptual knowledge that won't necessarily uh, have the kind of experiential realness that the contradictory knowledge needs to have for this process to uh, be successful. So uh, we have to engage in a process of finding something that has that realness for her. Uh, and let's see, let me... We have we have a number of different techniques that we've developed for finding the needed contradictory knowledge. There's actually many ways to do this. But there's one that is the simplest of all, and it's the one we usually start with because it, it works with maybe half to two-thirds of all clients. Uh, half to two-thirds of all clients already are in possession of a vivid contradictory knowledge that will disconfirm the target learning. And you'll see what I mean when I describe how I guided her to find her contradictory knowledge. I figured that it was likely that it was all already very real to her as an adult woman who's, uh, you know, is, is familiar with uh, all kinds of readings and 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 uh, social knowledge and psychological knowledge. She already knew. I, I was quite sure that this kind of experience, a molestation, sadly happens to many girls and children. But I needed her to bump into this knowledge in a vivid manner. So here's what I did. It was really very simple. I once this had become clear and verbalized in the room, and we had sat with it and. Uh, 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 sort of honored the 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 uh, pr the existence of this emotional truth of her only to me, and I am so resentful at the world for this. Well, I, I uh, when I sensed that we had uh, sat with that emotional truth long enough, I asked, you know, say it to me. It happened only to me, and she said it, and. Uh, it had for her, uh, it still felt real. It, it simply felt true. Uh, this mm -hmm. was a freshly retrieved piece of emotional truth. And uh, when she said it first, uh, it, it had that same ring of truth, and it brought with it the resentment and that whole, uh, you could call it an ego state uh, or, or an emotional schema, fully intact. I then asked her to say it to me again. Same words. It happened only to me. This time, when she said it, uh, right after she said it, I saw her facial expression change into a look of something like surprised confusion. Mm -hmm. And that's a good sign we've learned uh, for this step. And so I invited her to say it again. Please say it one more time. It happened only to me. She says it one more time, a third time, and this time I saw her eyes start blinking and darting around as her own contradictory adult throwing sort of lit up because she because this already was typically clear to her. Right, 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 right. 
So that feels very elegant in a sense of instead of being in a position of arguing with her and uh, in a cognitive debate, which doesn't touch experience, uh, that the process of articulating this implicit learning is actually allowing her to progressively uh, confront it to her own learning as an adult. And then you have experiential learning versus experiential learning and inside her so that she can then uh, make the leap. Precisely. That's precisely it. Uh, when we train therapists in guiding this process, we are very explicit and emphatic that the therapist must never come across as correcting or refuting or invalidating the target learning. Not one bit of that. Uh, that's a very different process. So, uh, this is, so this is very different than, than cognitive behavioral therapy. Quite different. Fundamentally different. Uh, the moment you start to invalidate the kid learning by correcting it or suggesting that it's irrational or incorrect or uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, should be let go of, you're launching a very different process emotionally and neurologically. You're cueing the client's emotional mind to resuppress and cut off from the target learning, which had been successfully, you know, accessed and brought forth. And so that will just turn out to be the, the suppressive or regulatory process, whereas by fully welcoming and empathizing with both the target learning and this very contradictory knowledge, you're setting up a very different process. In yeah. fact, maybe it's right here that I can map this onto the reconsolidation. Yeah, region. yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah. That's what they have found, and it's been very well replicated many times. What, what happens is, is this. When an implicit emotional learning is re-triggered and brought into uh, the front of awareness, well, that in itself uh, doesn't launch the reconsolidation process, but it's the, if we regard that as step number one of the erasure sequence, the reactivation of the target learning. It's, it's the next step, the second step, that does the remarkable neurological process. It is the creation of what the researchers call a mismatch experience or a prediction error experience. It's a, uh, an experience, it's anything that that concurrent with the reactivation of the target learning has this vivid meaning that the target learning has it wrong. Uh, now I'm simplifying. I'm simplifying here. The the actual reconsolidation research is 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 subtle and complex. It turns out that anything unfamiliar to the target learning uh, happening simultaneous with the target learning can induce this process, but for the sake of therapy, what we want is something that fully contradicts the target learning, because that's what will be used to erase the target learning. When there is this mismatch experience or prediction error experience, where the target learning is activated and then something happens that disconfirms what that learning knows or expects, very rapidly the synapses that encode the target learning unlock. 
these are synapses that are meant to last a lifetime because anything learned in the presence of strong emotion forms with special synapses that are ultra-durable. Strong emotion releases hormones that directly affect synapse formation. So emotional learnings have these ultra-durable synapses, and that's why they last a lifetime. That is the locking mechanism. But the brain, uh, evolution being the, the amazing, brilliant process that it is, the brain is equipped with this very special process that can unlock synapses. And when I say unlock the synapse, that's, that's not just a metaphor. The synapses are actually physically changed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A shift from a uh, this ultra-durable permanent state into a state that the neuroscientists call uh, labile or destabilized. And they remain in that state for several hours, during which a new learning can directly rewrite, re-encode those synapses according to the new learning. Mm-hmm. And... This uh, experience that I was guiding her through is uh, is an example of how this works in therapy, where the target learning is reactivated simultaneously. Then, with the target learning reactivated, we guide the client into a into a vivid contradictory knowledge, and we call that in coherence therapy a juxtaposition experience. And it turns out the entire memory reconsolidation process of unlocking, rewriting, and erasing the target learning, uh, the whole process is carried out by guiding a juxtaposition experience and maintaining it for five or ten minutes, two or three revisitings or repetitions of that juxtaposition. Right, right. So that there is an emotional relearning. It's not uh, conceptual relearning, but essentially something that the uh, uh, the person is in a state of attention uh, where she can realize that the model doesn't correspond to the experiential reality, and then there is an opening for a reconceptualization. That's right. The, this juxtaposition experience from the client's angle is a very odd experience because uh, she is in touch with two different emotional truths, both of which, you know, feel emotionally real to her, mm -hmm. and yet both cannot possibly be true yeah. at the same And what's interesting is that that experience already existed, so um, it was a sense that the previous uh, learning, the previous emotional learning was a filter through which some experience was excluded, uh, and suddenly, by the juxtaposition, there's the possibility of confronting and integrating that new experience so yeah. that you then build a new learning instead of the old one, which is now proved inadequate. Yes. Yes. The, the target learning, well, these two different learnings that are in, uh, sort of encountering each other or colliding uh, during the juxtaposition experience, these two different learnings have existed in, in completely different memory systems until now. Mm -hmm. The target learning being an implicit emotional learning is in uh, presumably the limbic system, the subcortical emotional memory system, and has never shown up in the conscious cortical uh, knowledge library memory system, uh, her, which is where her knowledge that this kind of thing happens uh, tragically to, to many children existed. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So I was simply guiding her to connect those two pieces of personal knowledge. Great, great. So that was a very beautiful example. I'm glad you used it as a way to uh, to make this come to life. Good. Well, I hope it I hope it clarified the process to some degree, at least initially, for your listeners. And um, one thing I want to mention uh, to add on to that is simply this: when we talk about erasure, uh, how memory reconsolidation accomplishes erasure of, a, of an emotional learning. Uh, some therapists feel concerned about the loss of autobiographical memory, you know, uh, events in one's life. So I just want to mention that what's erased is not memory of events in one's life. What's erased are the emotional meanings and models and schemas and core beliefs that were formed by the person based on events. Like this woman still remembered everything that happened, you see? So people don't lose memory of what happened in their lives, but these negative emotional meanings and self-protective tactics that are uh, that arise from these emotional learnings are what dissolve and fall away. Yeah, yeah. Now we're talking about uh, unlearning uh, faulty conclusions. Right, right. Faulty conclusions in the implicit system. Yes, no, uh, not, a, not at the cognitive person, level. Yeah, yeah. The conclusions the person doesn't even realize that they yeah, that they had yeah. come to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Bruce. The- This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Models and schemas and core beliefs that were formed by the person based on events. Like this woman still remembered everything that happened, you see? So people don't lose memory of what happened in their lives, but these negative emotional meanings and self-protective tactics that are uh, that arise from these emotional learnings are what dissolve and fall away. Yeah, yeah. Now we're talking about uh, unlearning uh, faulty conclusions. Right, right. Faulty conclusions in the implicit system. Yes, no, uh, not, a, not at a cognitive person, level. Yeah. Yeah, the conclusions the person doesn't even realize that they yeah, that they had yeah. come to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Bruce. That- This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.